How's it going, Ecclesia? Uh, my name's Soren, and I'm a seminary student here at Princeton Seminary. I uh, preached this last Sunday, but I was so nervous coming up that I totally forgot to press the record button on my iPhone so that we could record this and, and put it on Spotify and whatnot. So I'm re-recording it here today. Um, but if you were there this Sunday, you know that we're talking today about the Incarnation. And the Incarnation is one of those doctrines that are at the very center of Christianity in the person of Jesus. But at the same time, it is one of the least understood and appreciated aspects of Christian theology. Now I'm going to start with a little talk about paradoxes, or what, what a paradox is. Now at the, ver at the bottom of every worldview, and in any attempt to delve into the deepest parts of reality, we run into these things called paradoxes. Now, a paradox is a reality that can't be described without lots of confusion and without wandering into apparent contradictions. It's a reality that exceeds the capacity of language, but unlike a contradiction, a paradox actually happens in the real world. In a famous quantum mechanics experiment called the double slit experiment, Scientists shot electrons through slits in a screen barrier to see whether they behaved like particles or waves. Now typically something is either a, a bit of matter like a particle or a flow of energy like a wave. It can't be both. But the experiment showed exactly that. The same electron can exist as a particle and a wave, and there's some technicalities with, uh, depending on the conditions of observation. I'm sure my physics people listening know more about this than I do, but I do know that the conclusion remains ultimately incomprehensible. Yet, it's true. It's, it's a paradox. Now, every view of reality also rests on a paradox. If I'm an atheist, and there's nothing beyond the natural world, how and from where did the natural world come to be? How did something come from nothing? That's an incomprehensible idea, but if I want to maintain atheism, I have to believe that it's true. That at some point, something did come from nothing. And since every worldview rests on a paradox, it's not a matter of whether I want to believe in a paradox, but rather, what paradox am I going to live according to? What incomprehensible idea am I going to have faith in the reality of? And faith, like a paradox, then is something everyone must live according to. And the paradox we choose to live in faith towards has massive sway over the course of our lives. So like I said, today we're talking about the Incarnation. And this is one of Christianity's great paradoxes. That Jesus Christ, a first century Jew born to Mary in Bethlehem, grew up, healed the sick, made the lame walk, the blind see, claimed to forgive sins, and made bold claims such as, I and the Father are one. Before Abraham, I am. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. 
Jesus claimed to be God. And he was accused of blasphemy by the religious leaders of his day who had him crucified shortly thereafter. Now, several hundred years later, in the Council of Chalcedon, church leaders got together and they tried to make sense of Jesus' humanity and divinity. And they ended up saying that Jesus was one person with two natures, a fully human nature and a fully divine nature. Jesus' human nature meant he was like us in all respects, and his divine nature meant he was also God the Son, the second person of the Trinity. Jesus was fully God and fully human. It's a paradox. Now, when we think of Jesus, we often tend to stray in one of two directions. Either we think that Jesus was basically 99% God and 1% human, sort of the, the mind of God animating a human body. Or we think of Jesus as basically a human with, with a spark of divinity, whatever that means. But no, Jesus was fully human and fully God. So now let's go back to Philippians. And we're going to break it down. Um, well, in this, in this pre-recorded uh, sermon, we're going to Philippians for the first time. And we're going to break it down, and I'm going to give three points on what the Incarnation is and what it means for us. So here we are in the NIV. It goes, In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Now notice that verse 5 is a sort of prelude to verses 6 through 8, which is actually a poem. Paul breaks into poetry as he introduces the paradox of the Incarnation. He recognizes that language is being stretched and poetry is the only adequate, exalting form of language in which to talk about the mysteries of God. But verse 5 also tells us something about the application of the poem. It says, In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. So what follows is about God, but it's also about us and our relationships with each other. There's, there's no theology for Paul that isn't also deeply practical and life-forming. All theology calls us to get dirt under our fingernails because it calls us to do something. So just as we go on, keep in mind continually that what follows is about you, your relationships with your friends, with your siblings, your parents, your coworkers, with your fellow students, 
those that are easy to love, but also those who drive you crazy and even those who have hurt you. It's especially about those. So a first point is that in the incarnation, God comes to us. Focusing on verses 6 through 7, I'm going to just repeat it real quick. It says, Have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. Now, as I said earlier, people tend to either focus on Jesus as God to the diminishment of Jesus as human, while others focus on the humanness of Jesus and minimize his divinity. But I suspect that most of us in this setting probably tend towards the former. We think of Jesus walking around and talking and asking questions that he doesn't actually mean because he already knows everything. When Jesus grew up and performed his earthly ministry, it was kind of done in jest because he already knew what was going on and everything that was going to happen. But no. When Jesus says that no one, not even the Son, knows the day nor the hour of the second coming of the Father, he means it. He doesn't know. And when Jesus prays, petitioning God, the Garden of Gethsemane, please take this cup from me, Lord. He's actually praying, and he's actually afraid, and he's actually in pain. Jesus was human, and yet was in very nature God. For many of us, we think of God as a distant, transcendent reality towards which we strive and aspire. Some, some sort of ethical ideal that's far away and impersonal. Or maybe we think of Mount Sinai, where God is located at lofty heights and you can't even face him because his radiance is so harsh that it will kill you. And in, and in some sense, that's true. God literally created the world out of nothing and is filled with majesty and holiness. But if that's all we say about God, we have a view of God that Jesus actually obscures. Behind the subtle and meek front of Jesus, we think, is actually a big, scary, stern, and distant God. But no, Jesus in the, incarnate, in the incarnation reveals who God is. Jesus does not hide God. And in Jesus, God is revealed as one who makes himself nothing. By taking the very nature of a servant. And if that's true, we most fully understand God when we understand that God does not wield his power for the sake of some selfish agenda. No. He comes down to broken people divesting himself of the power that we would probably use to smite those we don't like, and instead, God bends down and washes the feet of his disciples. There's a Greek word for this called kenosis. It means self-emptying. God doesn't bludgeon from on high, but comes down 
is a servant and loves. And Paul says, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. And this is good news for people like us. Creation isn't something to be superseded or transcended. God affirms embodiment when he came into it with us as a re revelation of who he is. And God, for us, is too often, as we said, something to be reached for, something that's acquired like any other commodity. Through sweat and tears, meditation in the morning, a balanced lifestyle, tailor your life well, we say, and you too can have a connection with God. Get in your vitamin D, go, go on a run, do yoga, go to Orange Theory, touch the divine. But no, we can't climb to God. So God came down to us. God came down into the very fleshly creation he created us in. The creation he called very good in Genesis and which fell away from God shortly thereafter. God came down into human form because creation is fundamentally good. God seeks to redeem it by coming into it. And this is what we acknowledge when we take communion. When we take the bread and the wine and hear Jesus' words, this is my body, this is my blood broken for you. Communion is an incarnational practice. And through it, we form ourselves into the reality that God came down to us. So that brings us to our second point. In the incarnation, God accepts us. Focusing on the first half of verse 8, and being found in human, no, and being found in appearance as man, he humbled himself. Now we can't forget that everything that Jesus said and did was in the background of the Old Testament. When Jesus taught and fulfilled the scriptures, he wasn't talking about Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. It was, it was Genesis, Exodus, Kings, the Psalms, and the rest of the Old Testament. And the Old Testament contains historical records, poetry, laws, and stories about Israel's relationship to Yahweh. And if you know anything about Israel, you know that they were constantly unfaithful. The periods of Israel's faithfulness were the anomaly, not the norm. And when Jesus called Abraham out of Ur, the historical beginning of the nation of Israel, it wasn't long before he was lying to Pharaoh, put his wife in danger to protect himself. And then in two generations, his grandson Jacob stole the birthright from his own brother Esau. Then after God freed Israel from Egypt through many miracles, the people of Israel fashioned a golden calf to worship. King David murdered a faithful commander in his army so he could take his wife. And Israel was constantly going back to Baal worship, even performing child sacrifices. And God would send judgment upon Israel and they would come crawling back, 
only to return to their sin. In Hosea, God says, When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. But the more they were called, the more they went away from me. They sacrificed to the Baals and they burned incense to images. It was I who taught Ephraim to walk, taking them by the arms. But they did not realize it was I who healed them. I led them with cords of human kindness, with ties of love. But to them I was like one who lifts a child to the cheek. I bent down to feed them. God bound himself to Israel with a covenantal love. And though Israel abandoned him again and again, whored with other gods and spit in Yahweh's face, God held them like a child, holding their arms and teaching them to walk. Throughout their disobedience, Israel had been promised a Messiah who would come and save them from their pain and save them from their destruction and their own disobedience. And this is the Messiah that Jesus claimed to be. Coming down to those who were the most unfaithful. And he came to them in the most intimate of ways in the flesh. And this sort of acceptance is it's something that we Westerners talk about with high regard. It's something that our culture values in an abstract sense. But this sort of acceptance is something that we rarely actually experience. In the real world, so it seems, we are accepted when we reach the standard. We are valued when we're productive and relationships are loved in their utility. And we all acknowledge forgiveness as a virtue, but when someone slaps us in the face, we realize how impossible of a task it seems to be. So we cut ourselves off from reliance on others. We become big bootstrappers. Pick yourself up. You have all the resources you need. We hear you don't need anyone else. Whether we're talking about economics or self-love, we're told to bootstrap ourselves to salvation. And when we try to do this, we, you know, maybe we work hard to get into grad school or get promoted at our job or bounce from relationship to relationship, or constantly seek ways to bring excessive attention to ourselves so that we can convince ourselves that, that I'm special. I'm, I'm one of a kind. I'm valued in ways that are unique to me. I, I can't be replaced. I'm an important part of the lives of the people around me, and I need meaning to get me through the trials of life. But it always seems like doubt is nipping at my heels. The theologian Dorothy Zolle said that in the modern world, where we lack a common narrative from which we can receive our identity, we are faced with the task of having to achieve our own identity. An identity she said, is inextricably bound with being seen as irreplaceable. So we're faced with a daunting task. 
How do we bootstrap ourselves into irreplaceability? We can look around the world and it seems like a giant assembly line. People lined up behind us, ready to instantly take our place. Zillay also says, I am only able to alert, this is a quote, this is a quote. I am only able to learn to accept myself in my social, personal, historical situation. If somewhere and at some time, I have already been accepted. So long as no one else accepts me, self-acceptance is impossible. No bootstrapping there. And so we look for acceptance, which makes being an outcast very hard. And we're looking for one thing, really, even though the words are often endlessly wasted to the point of being very trite still, when they're used in serious earnest, we still feel their power. I love you. I love you, and it doesn't matter how fast you can run or how far you jump or how well you can do on a test or how quickly you get promoted deeper in you than that is something that to me is completely irreplaceable. You are one of a kind and there isn't anything else in the universe quite like you. And this is what God says to us in the incarnation. God doesn't only accept you, he yearns for you. So much so that God divested himself of all the powers of heaven and took the form of a slave, being born in human likeness. Being born in a manger, he came down as the least of these for the least of these, touching lepers and eating with tax collectors and prostitutes and saying that the kingdom of heaven will be entered by those who are like children. We can accept ourselves because first, God accepted us in the incarnation. If you seek acceptance through relationships, romantic or otherwise, you will strive to become who the other person wants because you're afraid that they'll leave you. If you seek acceptance through culture, you'll be eaten alive. But as the Danish philosopher Soren Kierkegaard said, now, with God's help, I can become myself. This brings us to our third and final point. That in the incarnation, God saves us. Focusing on the latter half of verse 8, Jesus humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on the cross. During college, I had a really good pastor who would explain the gospel through the lens of the incarnation and what he called the theology of touch. He would say, salvation isn't a data dump. It's not just divine information that comes down, you cognize, and then you're saved. If that was the case, Jesus would have, you know, God would have sent down just a scroll, would have sent down some computer chip that we could download into our minds. But no, 
God came down in a body. And when Jesus came down, he came up to blind people and he picked up mud and he spat in it and he touched their eyes with it. And he said, you can see, and they saw. And he came up to lepers and he touched them when he healed them. And he came up to deaf people, he touched their ears and they could hear. And he said, Zacchaeus, come down from the tree and we're going to go, we're going to have a meal, we're going to eat. We're going to sit with lots of people. I'm going I'm to do my first miracle at a wedding where we're feasting together. And so when, when somebody is saved, he would say, it's when Jesus touches them. It includes the mind, but it, it involves so much more. It's everything. It's holistic. When Jesus saves us, he touches us. And when Jesus touches the infirmities of the world, he comes into our suffering. And so when we suffer, oftentimes we say, and when someone tries to console us like Job's friends, we recoil a bit inside and we think, you, you don't understand me. You don't put yourself entirely in my place. And if you could put yourself in, in my place and entirely understand me, then you would speak differently. And you would also know and understand that, that there is no consolation. That's my situation. You don't get it. And you would be partly right. We're partly right when we say that. No human being can entirely put themselves in your place and suffer as you have. No human being can entirely understand you. But there is one that can entirely understand you. When God and Jesus came down and touched people, he suffered as they did. In Jesus, we have one who was tested in all things and who was unconditionally the greatest sufferer. Maybe you have worldly worries with finances, job security, your livelihood in the midst of the pandemic and the fallout we've been experiencing. Jesus, too, faced hunger and thirst in the most difficult moments of his life. Maybe you have sorrow over the evil in the world, the political, racial strife we're all experiencing, and the difficulties also of COVID. Jesus, in confronting the evil in the world, was flogged and brought to the cross. Or maybe you have a broken heart. In his darkest moment, Jesus was betrayed, denied, and abandoned by those he held closest to on earth. In all things you suffer, God has suffered. And God has sought to redeem your suffering by taking it on himself, living a perfect life, dying at the hands of evil, and throwing off its shackles in the resurrection. And this is the hope we have in the incarnate Christ. Mold this reality over in your heart and preach it to yourself. Don't let the world distract you. I'm going to end with a, with a story and see if we can tie all of this together. 
Um, I had a college professor named Jerry Root. He was a C.S. Lewis professor. He was just one of those super charismatic guys where you take one of his classes, everybody's weepy-eyed, and you have a renewed belief in the existence of God. But I saw an interview of him once. Uh, the interview was on the power of story and how the power of story can lead us to God. And the interviewer asked him, have you encountered a story recently that, that's been powerful, that has deeply affected you? And Dr. Root said, yeah, I have actually. I was, uh, I was flying on an airplane recently and they were playing the movies that they do on the airplane TV screens and I saw this movie called The Notebook. He's an old guy, I don't know if he had ever heard of The Notebook before that. But he began to recount the narrative, the, the plot line in this movie. And he basically began and he was like, the movie opens and you see this, this old man comes into this retirement home where he reads stories with, to people with dementia. And he walks in this particular woman's room and he begins reading her the story and you know, you're like, oh wow, what a, what a nice thing to do, how, how kind. And as he begins reading the story, the film actually shifts to depicting the story itself. And he, he's reading it and, and you figure out it's, a, it's about this, this well-to-do woman who comes from a good family, has high expectations, and, and then she meets this guy. This, this guy who, you don't really know the details, but he seems to have come from a broken family. Maybe his mom left him early on. The film doesn't mention him, but basically they meet and there's this connection, there's a spark, there's this potential for love. And they meet and the, the class differences between them set up so many barriers and they try to conquer it and they try to make it together and it doesn't seem like it's going to work. And then World War II happens and she becomes a nurse and he goes off as a soldier and you're like, it's impossible, this is not going to happen, they're so distant, they're so far apart, there's so many complexities in the world, there's so much evil that's separating these very small stories. But then it happens. Against all odds, it happens. And they come together in love, and it works. And this old man is reading this old woman this story and as he gets to a climactic moment, this wave of cognition goes over her face and she looks at him and she says, that's us. That's you, I, you're the guy and I'm the girl. And this is our story. And she gets up and she comes to him and she says, hold me. And, and they're in this room and there's a, there's, there's a rose in the vase, there's a record player playing the music from when they were young and this whole room is reverberating the love that this man has for this woman. And she says, hold me. And they dance and she, she asks him, how, how are the children? And he says, oh, they're, they're doing well, they, they came to see you this morning. And she says, tell them I love them. And he says, I will. And she asked him, how, how long is this going to last? And he said, last time it was five minutes. 
and so then they dance and as quickly as the wave of cognition came over her face it leaves and she looks at him and she finds herself in the arms of a stranger and she panics and she starts thrashing and nurses come in to sedate her and the old man falls back and he's weeping and biting his finger watching his wife be brought to the ground and Jerry Root then said to the interviewer, he says, that's when I lost it. That's when tears just started pouring down my face. He said, uh, I'm a high T on the Myers-Briggs, but at that moment I was a feeler all the way. And he said, what about it? What about that story just hit me so deeply? What about it just resonated with the core of my being? And he looked at the interviewer and he said, and I realized it's all of our story. We live in a state of dementia and God is reading his story to us every day. When God came in the incarnation and he, he, he comes down to us and he accepted us and he saved us and he touched us and he healed lepers and he rose from the dead. And look at the beauty of the mountains and the lakes Look at, look at the forest, look at the people around you, your best friends. God is singing the story to us every day and once in a while we actually wake up. And we're like, God, this is our story. This is our story. And then some minor inconvenience comes and we find ourselves distracted and in the arms of a stranger. And Dr. Root said, God is that old man crying, biting his finger, looking at us oblivious to the story that we're a part of. So don't forget the story you're a part of. Don't forget that God came down in the incarnation. He came to you. He's reading his story to you and he accepts you in it and he saves you in the story. And as I said, this is the hope we have in the incarnate Christ. Mold this reality over in your heart and preach it to yourself. Don't let the world distract you. And in the words of C.S. Lewis, I'll quote, something about story. It's a quote from The Last Battle. C.S. Lewis says, Now, at last, they were beginning chapter one of the great story no one on earth has ever read, which goes on forever, in which each chapter is better than the one before. And this is our story. I'll end in prayer. God, thank you for including us in your story, God. Thank you for coming down to us in the creation you made us in, which has been broken and rent apart. Lord, thank you for coming down and divesting yourself of all the powers of heaven and washing the feet of your disciples, Lord. Coming down in the form of a servant, not counting 
equality with the powers of heaven, something to be grasped, God, but you came down to us and told us to enter your kingdom, my children. Lord, in our relationships with one another, let us have the same mind as you. Lord, we believe, help our unbelief. Lord, we love you, help us in the ways that we don't. In your name we pray. Amen.